You can unmute me, Kyle. Oh, you already did. <laughs> Look at that. Um, yeah, last week, Daniel helped me move the, the board, and this week he's not even here. So I think the comment that I said, you know, about Georgia and Tennessee, really, really stung. So, um, no, he's at Exchange Church this morning, one of our church plants uh, leading worship. So that's awesome. Uh, we continue to talk about, we continue our, our series. Uh, this is the final week of the Vine Project series on making disciples or learners, you know, apprentices of, of Jesus. Uh, we've looked at why the church should be about making disciples. We've talked about what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. And then last week we talked about how are disciples made. And then today we're gonna talk about who. Who makes disciples? And then a little bit about where. Where are disciples made? So we've just about covered the whole who, what, when, where, why of disciple making. And last week I attempted to draw out a diagram, attempted being the key word there, that summarizes the process. And you can actually also see it on the screen because let's face it, it's a little small on the board up here. Um, but what I was trying to get across in the last couple weeks is that God has a grand plan or an agenda for the world to see a redeemed people gathered around the risen Christ. That's where all of history is, is headed. And God is in the business now of taking people from the domain of darkness, living apart from him without hope in the world, and transferring them out of that domain into the kingdom of his beloved son. To see them transferred, and then after they get transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, they're then, they grow and they change, they transform. They're transferred and they transform into people that more and more as they grow in maturity, in Christian maturity, they look back for others who are somewhere else along this journey and seek to bring them along with them towards love and maturity in Christ. I was just summarizing this as the process of making disciples. And this is what God's up to. This is what he invites us to be a part of. And working through this diagram in more detail, uh, where we talked about, well, I'll get into some of this in a minute, uh, that was like last week's whole sermon. So if you missed it, you can go back and, and listen to that. But as I'm laying all this out there, I realize one question that may come up in your minds that some of you may be wondering is, okay, so if this is all disciple making is, I said disciple making was helping people wherever they are take one next step towards Jesus. Whether, whether they're not Christians or they are, you're helping them take one next step towards Jesus. If that's all disciple making is, then well, can't everything I do sort of be disciple-making? Like, do I really need to do anything extra? Because, you know, what about uh, when I help the little old lady across the street? I don't know why that's always the example, but it is. Um, did I help her take one next step towards Jesus? Maybe you help her take a next step, but, um, you know, or what about changing my kids' diapers? Or doing a good job at work? You know, are you saying that's all that disciple-making is? You know, kind of like the good old... Uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, quote that that St. Francis guy said. What about that? Well, um, let's talk about it. Because remember, we, we talked about there are some key ingredients to disciple making that can't be substituted. They can't be left out. And we summed those things up in this acronym, P-L-A-N, plan, which had to do with presenting or proclaiming the message of the gospel, the word of Christ, and then leaning on God in prayer so that he would work in others' lives and bring that word to change them. 
And doing that over time, never giving up. Oh, and then the A, all of us partner together. All God's people are, are, are in this, assisting one another in ministry. So in saying that, disciple-making is helping those around you take one next step towards Jesus. I'm not trying to broaden disciple-making to literally everything that you could do, but I am trying to simplify it to something that everyone can do and that everyone can grow in because there's always a next step for you to take. So what about helping the little old lady? Um, Or for that matter, you know, your work as a financial planner or a stay-at-home parent or a painter or marketing executive. How does the rest of my life fit into all this, this? You know, do all those things matter? And well, yes, they do. But remember, all of life can be offered to God as as worship, but not necessarily everything we do is disciple-making, and that's okay. God's given us other really important things to do as well, turning wrenches, making widgets, packing school lunches, caring for elderly parents are all things that we can offer to God as worshipful acts. Uh, As author Dorothy Sayers said about Jesus himself, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Jesus probably did his work well, too. And in the book of Titus that we studied earlier this year, if you remember, it expressly says in chapter 2 that a Christian's behavior or their work ethic, both at home and in the workplace, these things will either adorn or enhance the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, the message we proclaim, or they will revile or detract from it. So in other words, your quality of living and your quality of working will either attract others or repel them from the message of Jesus. So all the like basic life stuff matters tremendously to God, but it's not necessarily called disciple making, right? I try to say that making disciples is intentionally living your life to invest in the lives of others by prayerfully and patiently speaking the word of Jesus into their life until they take their next step forward. That's longer than what I said last time, but I'm adding some some meat to it. So it turns out that, yeah, in order to make disciples or proclaim the gospel, words are necessary. You know, even if you did the heart of the quote, which is to live your life in such a way that people came to you and they were like, hey, tell me about this God you serve because the way you live is just so amazing. What are you going to do? Like play charades with them? You know, like, well, I'm only using words if absolutely necessary. So let's, let's do a pic- Pictionary or something. No, like you're going to speak the word of Christ. That's part of, that's part of the thing. That's part of the plan. So I'm sorry to start us in the nuance of those weeds this morning, but the clarification I'm trying to make actually leads us to the first of three biblical principles that I want to give you today as we talk about. So, who makes disciples? I want to give you three biblical principles, and the first of those is this. When God's Spirit fills, God's people speak. When God's Spirit fills, God's people speak. So it's fascinating. If you do a read-through of the New Testament— and you look for where it says people are filled by the Spirit, 
you're gonna see something really interesting, a, a, a pattern that I think will emerge. So starting with John chapter 20, that's where we'll be first, and we're gonna be flipping all around through the, through the New Testament, starting in John chapter 20. This is after Jesus' resurrection, and let's start in verse 19. This is on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Uh, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Yes, I would think so. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, now I've, all, I've always thought this passage a bit odd in several ways. First of all, why does Jesus breathe on his disciples? That seems a little weird, right? Have you ever had someone just breathe on you? You know, it seems, it seems weird. But it's significant because it harkens back to Genesis chapter 2 when God gave the first breath of life to Adam. So this is now God incarnate, Jesus Christ speaking or breathing new spiritual life into these disciples. And as he does them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, and honestly, that seems a bit weird to me too. So now the disciples have the power to say, you know, have the power to forgive sin? Isn't that God's business? Yes, but what the disciples have is the authoritative message of forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. And with that message, if someone receives it by faith, they have the authority to now say, your sins are really, truly forgiven. And you can count on that. And if someone hears that message and they say, they, they say no thanks and they reject it, then they can say your sins are not forgiven. But my point here is just that, making the first of a case from a few passages, that the receiving of the Spirit is vitally connected to the preaching of the message of Jesus, the speaking of the gospel. When God's Spirit fills, God's people speak. So if you go one book over to the book of Acts, chapter 2, um, verse Verse 1 of chapter 2, when the disciples are still, st still gathered in Jerusalem after Jesus is raised from the dead, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens? They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And skip down to verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Okay, so as... These first, this first band of disciples are filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak the gospel message to people in their own languages. 
And this causes a big stir, so Peter will stand up and explain that what's happening is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, such that now it's, it's not just the prophets who will prophesy or proclaim the truth of God anymore, it's all of God's people. Listen to what Peter says to the crowd when they're amazed at what's happening. He says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, i.e., it's like 9 a.m. I'm not sure if his argument would be quite as convincing at ECU on game day, but this is what he says to these people. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male ser servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So it's not just the prophets of old, or a certain class of Christians that will be able to prophesy. All of God's people will be filled with his spirit, and so all of God's people will be able to speak the word of Christ. And in this passage, right, it's not even like a, an ecstatic kind of speaking in tongues that's like mind control, takeover, but it's a language that can be understood. It's clear and it's, it's a heartfelt, rational presentation of the news about Jesus. They speak about the mighty works of God here. If you go over to Acts chapter 4, it, when Peter gets up to speak in front of the, the Jewish people, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks. And then later in chapter 4, verse 31, they all pray together and the place in which they were gathered was shaken. They were all, look at this, filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? Continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I could stop a few more places in the book of Acts to belabor my point, but instead, I'm just going to make one more jump over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Uh, somewhat fair known, uh, fairly well-known verse to Baptist, at least the, at least the first half, um, but there's more to it. Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what happens? addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So when the church is filled with the Spirit, it's contrasted to pe people being filled with spirits, you know, with wine, where inhibitions are lowered and people say what's really down there. You know, so it's, it's an interesting comparison. And you hear this come up several times in Acts and now in, in Ephesians. It seems that being filled with the Spirit, it means that the Spirit moves Christians in such a way that they now have boldness to say what's really down there. And what's really down there for a Christian is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And it's cool that it comes out in the Ephesians passage in song. It's not like Christians then speak an unemotional, cold word. You know, the Spirit moves people uh, to speak with with feeling and emotion. I mean, so many of the Psalms are like this. Psalm 40 is like, the Lord rescued me and he opened my mouth to sing a new song. You know, I've always wondered about um, worship music and worship lyrics across different religions. 
And I've never done any formal research on this. If you're a student in Southeastern, maybe someone can turn this into a PhD dissertation. But my money would be, if you were to compare the lyrics in worship music across religions, you would find that Christianity has far more songs of deep love, adoration, and heart-melting thankfulness than any other faith. You know, oh, wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. And there's a million others like that. But this is the response that Christian truth evokes in a person when they understand it. This is how the Holy Spirit works on Christians. John 16, verse 14 tells us that the Spirit glorifies Jesus by taking what is true about him and declaring it, declaring it to us internally. The Spirit takes a floodlight in our hearts and turns it on Jesus such that who he is and what he's done is made real. It's made palpable to our hearts such that we are compelled to speak about him. It's not just brain takeover. It's heart transformation, mouth transformation. Because God created us as verbal, speaking creatures. When he gets a hold of us, when we're filled with the Spirit, we're moved. We're captivated by God and our speech is put to use as it was meant to be. I like what Tony Payne says about this. He says, at the most basic level, God gave us mouths with which to speak because he created us as personal beings who are able to express thoughts and intentions and promises to one another into the personal God who made us. Words allow us to do things in relationship with others that we couldn't otherwise do. To thank, to ask, to comfort, to confess, to forgive, to celebrate, to praise, to mourn, to inform, to teach, and so on. Words reveal or an outflow of the heart. Words are the currency of relationship. I mean, think about how much words matter and have mattered in your life. Words heal us and words can wound us. Words stick with us. You'll never amount to anything. I never want to see you again. You're ugly. You know, th these words, they are worse than sticks and stones, and they are much harder to dislodge. Uh, there are some researchers at a university school and uh, medical school in Germany, and they confirmed that pain-inducing negative words are processed in our brain through the same channels as physical pain. But words like, I'm so glad I met you, and did you know that you are really good at this or that? You are beautiful. You matter to me. I mean, words like that can keep you going like better than an intravenous IV espresso drip, you know? Words have innate power. So when God's spirit comes to dwell in a person's life, one of the first things he's interested in transforming is their speech and giving them what Hebrews calls a better word, the word of Christ. So what's my point here with all this stuff about words? Just this, if every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, which they are, then every Christian can be filled and empowered by the Spirit to speak the word of Christ. If you get the Spirit, you give the message. So that's biblical truth number one. When God's Spirit fills us, we speak. Number one. 
Secondly, biblical truth number two, when God's Spirit gives, people are trained. God's people are trained. When God's Spirit gives, then God's people are trained. What do I mean by this? Again, the book of Ephesians. If you happen to still be there from when you were in chapter five, you can go back one chapter to chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. Uh, verse 11. It says, and he, or God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now this passage tells you a lot about who makes disciples. Who are the ones that will do the work of ministry, that will grow the church up by speaking the word in love? Is it just the leaders? No. So why did God give us leaders? He gave us leaders in the church not to run the whole plan of engaging and evangelizing and establishing and equipping, but primarily to be equippers and trainers of you, of the church, of the congregation. It's our job to make sure you have everything you need to make disciples where you are. So who makes disciples? Well, we do. Pastors and people working together. By our training and example and encouragement, pastors and leaders equip all the saints to do the work of making disciples. And I think sometimes still, like most of you are like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But I think culturally, this is still hard for us to grasp sometimes, both for pastor and for congregant. Pastors sometimes take on way too much ministry themselves thinking they're, they're really the only ones who can really do the hospital visit or can really teach the class or can do the home uh, discovery, home Bible study. And church members oftentimes are happy to let them. But we, and when I say we, I mean all of us, including me, have to shift our mindset to see that pastors and leaders are coaches, they're trainers, they're supporters of your ministry. And we always think of it as just the other way around. As someone once put it, Christianity does not have a priesthood. It is a priesthood. Christianity is not an elitist religion. Celebrity pastor should be for us an oxymoron. Because Christian ministry and disciple making is the privilege and calling of every Christian. Paul instructs his young protege, Timothy, to make sure he doesn't try to carry the ministry of a church on his own back. But to do this, what you've heard from me, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is concerned that the life-changing word of Christ and the art of making disciples does not get stuck with Timothy. It must be passed on, who will then pass it on again to the next generation. Uh, one of our far-flung families uh, sent me this video as he's been watching our series from where he's at. And he was thinking about disciple-making in his own context in Japan, and he sent me this video. So if you guys can cue that up, take a look. 
現在刀だけで生計を立てていける方っていうのは私を含めて日本で大体30名ぐらいと言われています若い頃は刀が好きで作っていましたで年を重ねるごとにやはり日本人の美意識なり神秘感なり日本人の本質というものを次の世代に刀を通して伝えていこうと今思っています大学の頃でしたがある雑誌に今の私の師匠である宮入明平の写真集が載っておりましてまだ刀を作っている方が日本にいるっていうことが分かりましてそこで初めて刀鍛冶になろうと思って決心しました家族は反対しましたね刀で生計が成り立つとは到底考えられないので刀鍛冶になるんだったらまあ家出ていけと言われましたね平安鎌倉時代の刀いわゆる古刀というものは作り方も製法技術的なものもほとんど残されていません再現というのは限りなく不可能です不可能ですけれどもそこに私を感動させるものがありますのでそれを目指して40年やり続けてきてやっとこの56年に小作に1歩か2歩近づけるような作品ができてきました伝統工芸に携わっている人間はどうしても自分の技術を伝えておこうとする場合に時代に迎合する方向に走っていきますそうすることによって我々の持っている技術が少しずつ本質を外れていくですけれども本質を外してまで伝統文化を次の世界に伝えていくということは意味のないことだと思います弟子にはいつか私を超えてほしいと思っています私より優れた弟子を育てることが私の役目でありそうでなければ文化というものは風化してしまうのです私が師匠から受け継いだのは技術だけではありません師匠の刀に対する思いを受け継ぎました私も弟子には私の刀の思いを伝えていきたいと思いますし弟子も自分の刀に対する思いを次の世代に伝えていくものと思っています。So、think about how you got here. Not like how you drove here this morning, but like why are we meeting here? Talking about Jesus of Nazareth? Instead of worshiping, I don't know, Norse gods or our ancestors or the sun. It's because there was an unbroken chain of faithful Christians who passed down not only faithful doctrine, but passion for the gospel of Christ to you. You are a critical link in the next generation of this chain. 
In the video, he said, it's my responsibility to build up a disciple better than me. If not, the tradition will wear thin over time. So is that your prayer, that your earnest prayer that the people you pour into would become better than you? More effective evangelists, more gifted teachers, more generous givers, more energetic servers than you are. We ought to long for those that we invest in to one day surpass us in their zeal and their skill for the good of the next generation of Christians. But of course it's difficult to long for that and pray for that if there's no one that you're not really, if there's no one you're really investing in. If you're not looking for people who are around you, that you can help take that one next step towards Christ. So who makes disciples? All of us. You do. We do. Together, God gives leaders to the church to equip them for the work of ministry of making disciples. God's spirit gives and God's people are trained. All right, then third and last, biblical truth number three. When God's spirit sends, God's people go. When God's spirit sends, that's with a D, God's spirit does not sin. I know I'm from the South and sometimes that gets muddled, but when God's spirit sends, God's people go. I wanna circle back around to the passage that we started with. John 20, just verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. So we're shifting now to talk a little bit about where disciples are made, from who to, to where. Where are disciples made? Well, Jesus tells them, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Okay, as the Father has sent me. Well, the Father sent Jesus a long way, <laughs> and in a big way, crossing the divine, human, spirit, matter, timeless, time-bound, infinite, tangible barrier to walk among us and save us. Christ intends to send disciples to places where there are none. As John Stott said it, our God is a missionary God, and so his people must be a missionary people. So that means wherever disciples are, and in, especially in places where there are none yet, this could be far, far away from here geographically, or it could be very, very close. This is where disciples will be made. And all through the book of Acts, you see this. You see people prayerfully speaking the word of God in a variety of places. Uh, open air preaching in a private vehicle. It's a chariot, not a Tesla, an axe, but it's probably a pretty nice chariot um, with a Bible open. Late night in upstairs lofts, one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions, by letter while chained up in a prison. Wherever Christians go, disciples are made. So where do we go? Where are the places that you go where the word of Christ could be prayerfully spoken. This could be any number of places, uh, but for today, I wanna specifically just consider uh, three categories for us to think about as a church, three categories for us to think about as a church. Let me see if I can flip this around. Yes, there we go. I did some pre-drawing today, so I didn't have to struggle so much. But when you think about the task of disciple-making, being across you know, a spectrum of engaging someone in Christian relationship, uh, giving them the, the good news of Jesus over time, uh, establishing them in their faith as a Christian, and then equipping them to go back and do the same. When you think about that being the full spectrum of Christian ministry, let's consider three places where that's especially important for us as a church. 
the first you might think about, and this is one of the exercises that we did uh, with the Vine, the Vine Project team, is to think about Sundays. When we gather together, Sunday mornings, the, the Word of God is prayerfully spoken, uh, and not just from up here, but one to another, you know, do, do we pay attention to ministry across the spectrum? Um, do we engage or evangelize on Sunday or assume that really it's only Christians that will be present? And if you are new to Christianity here, um, I know these last few weeks are kind of an in-house like family discussion about how we're supposed to be reaching out to you and such, but I hope you also have realized that it's our hope that when we gather, you feel welcomed, that you feel like maybe sometimes some of your concerns or objections are addressed with understanding and kindness, that you feel seen. And then, of course, on Sundays, we would hope that Christians are established deeper in their faith. They learn more about God and His love for them, and they take a step into loving Him more. But then beyond that, we don't want Christians just to be established for their own sake, but also equipped so that they can go back and realize their learning doesn't terminate with them, but it's for the good of others who are still along here. So I don't know, if you had to take a guess, and we're not going to like fill all this in, but if you were to think about, okay, nerd mode for just a second, x-axis, y-axis, is this correct? Is this how this works? People who know more about graphs than me? If you were to think about this y-axis as effort or resources in these three categories, you know, what, would you, what do you think? Are we paying attention? Are we being faithful in ministry across all three? Or is it all this and not as much of the other? I don't have to get into the specifics now, but it's just a good frame of reference to think through. And then the second place as a church that we're thinking about this is when it comes to our ministries. What are some of the ministries we have as a church, right? You know some of these. Small groups, youth ministry, kids ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, lily moms, hope counseling, and, and, there's, and there's more. Not every ministry can do all four of these things equally well or even can do all of them all the time. But when you think about all of our ministries across the board, where are most of our efforts put? Are we faithfully doing ministry across the spectrum of disciple making where people are at or are we really heavily loaded in one place while neglecting some others? That was one of the big tasks about the, the Vine Project meeting. And if you want to hear more about that, be sure to come to our prayer meeting on December 4th, Sunday night. We're going to be sharing more specifics about some of the things that are coming out of that and praying over them together. And you'll hear more if you, if you miss that Sunday. It's not like a secret forever, but that would be a good place to come and, and get a start. And then last, we want to think about us as individuals. If this was another category... And that includes leaders, people like, like me, thinking about how much energy and effort, that's your y-axis, how much energy and effort am I putting into these four E's or any of them at all? You know, it's worth thinking about, do I only spend time with Christian folk here and here? Uh, am, am I faithfully or am I faithfully reading the Bible with my kids and praying for them that they would come to faith in Christ or be established in their faith? Where's most of your effort being put as a person? And not that you have to be equally the, the same in all these. There's different giftings that God has given to different of us and different opportunities that each of you have, but it's more about paying attention to and not neglecting the full spectrum of discipleship. And it can be hard to do this kind of self-evaluation um, 
And I don't want anyone to think through this from a place of anxiety or complacency, but from wisdom. When you think about your life and the opportunities you have to minister, you know, one way you can ask, am I doing enough, is to ask it from a place of anxiety. You know, from a heart that's trying to keep God on your good side or appease your spiritual mentors or others. And this leads to inauthentic disciple making because you're just trying to do it because you have to. And then also, you know, you don't want to ask, am I doing enough from a sense of complacency? As in, can I just do like what you're asking me to do so I can get back to doing the thing that I would really rather be doing? You know, just tell me what the plan is what the minimal expectations are. If it's a home Bible study or a discipleship group that I'm supposed to do now, just let me know the plan so I can do the basics and stop there. You know, that's a bare minimum approach that reveals we're not really living for God's plan in the world, but for something else. It's an idolatry issue. But then you can also ask this question in a helpful way. Am I doing enough from a place of wisdom? Which means I am on board with God's mission in the world and I'm willing to sacrifice to live faithfully in this life so what does this look like for me in the season of life that I'm in with the opportunities and limitations, God-given limitations that I have? If you're married, if you have kids, in some ways that's a limitation of kingdom work and in other ways it's a great opportunity for kingdom work. And yes, we all have to eat and sleep and rest and pay bills and do school and those things. So given those responsibilities you have in your life, where are you putting your focus and are you? Maybe you can't do all equally well, but given your place in life and your gifts, it's good to evaluate yourself from wisdom, not worry or idolatry, but honest wisdom from God and input from your community. Again, more on these ideas at the prayer gathering on December 4th. I hope you can come. But now to wrap up, let's get down to brass tacks with this. Because for most of us in the room that are Christians, I doubt any of you listening today are gonna to disagree with me in theory when I say, who makes disciples? All Christians. Like theoretically, theologically, you're like, yeah, I agree with you, but I would still say, that's just not me. That's for other people in our church, and it's not for me. I'm not a disciple maker. God may want other Christians to get on board with this, but I can barely get my own act together. And you expect me to make disciples? Have you seen my search history? Have you watched how I react to my kids? Do you know how long it's been since I've opened my Bible and prayed? Well, let's talk about that. Because first, if you don't think you're a disciple-making caliber, then realize this is a moment for repentance, not complacence. And then second, and this is crucial to remember in the words of a Switchfoot song, that the wound is where the light shines through. The wound is where the light shines through. What I mean is this, do you think that God really only wants you to minister out of your strengths, out of your most presentable sides? Power in weakness is what Christianity is all about. I mean, think about it. Why would God even leave us, leave you and me with indwelling sin? Wouldn't this be so much easier if you just like went ahead and cleansed us and took it all away? Paul gives us a hint in 1 Timothy 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the worst, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You received mercy. Why? So that Jesus would display his perfect patience with you as an example to everybody else. You see, what if God wants to use your failures and your struggles and your flaws as the very means he chooses to grow others? What if what you bring to the table is your mess so that others can see the grace and mercy of God all the more clearly in your life? I'm asking, what if vulnerability is a better tool for disciple-making than perfection? Not that we settle for complacency in our sin, but that we live in honesty and recognize that our limitations and weaknesses and failures are there so that the grace of God could be all the more on display. Remember, you're not making disciples of you. You're making disciples of Jesus. And that's where the language of, you know, I'm discipling someone or someone's discipling me can be unhelpful if you confuse who the true master is. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul says. You know, there are some things in my life that I think you could follow my example. And then there are some places in my life that I would long for you to do better. And I might need to follow your example as you follow Christ. And again, if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've been listening these last few weeks, first of all, thanks for bearing with us for four weeks of talk about what Christians are supposed to be doing and stuff. Um, but I hope you've also heard the heart of God for you through this series. That Christian life and church life and Christian ministry is meant to be driven by the same heartbeat of love as the God we serve. And I hope you hear that Christians are a work in progress. And we're a work in progress of learning to sacrifice our own social standing and personal comfort to talk with you about the things that matter most. And the heart of God towards any of my friends here that don't identify as a Christian or you're just unsure about where you stand is that he longs to show you his perfect patience too so that he can use your life as an example to others of his great love for all. And if you think that you're too messed up or too far gone for God to love you and save you and change you, then you've got another thing coming because that is exactly the kind of person he's looking for because the bigger the mess, the more grace is put on display and he is ready to step into your life and rescue you and change you and make you a whole new person and you can take that one next step towards him today simply by giving him the green light and saying, okay God, you win, I'm yours. I need you to forgive me and move into my life and save me and love me. You can take that next step even now. So let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your words. You've given us a better word to be on, on our hearts. The word of love, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Lord, as we evaluate our lives and as we evaluate our church, for are we about what we say we should be about? Fill us anew with the gospel of grace that we can be honest about our vulnerabilities because that's not what matters, but what matters is that we serve a great and good and gracious Savior. And I do pray for anybody here who's sorting through where they're at with you, that they would sense your heart for them is to move into their life and to love them and change them.